Welcome all to another episode of End of the World Podcast with your host, Anton Roberts. Um, today, I'm very, very lucky to be joined by Simon Armour. Good morning, Simon. How, how are we today? Morning, Anton. Very well, thank you. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, so today, we'll be obviously talking about your amazing work. So um, Simon is a what, a recent PhD graduate, right? You you uh, passed your, your viva and all the questions and whatnot. Um, so... It is Dr. Simon Armour now, right? Yeah, just, just finalising a few amendments. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, first and foremost, con, con, congratulations for that. That's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah so so you, so in terms of your uh, research area, then, obviously, you're, I, I know you're you're looking into kind of like volunteering uh, and well-being, um, you know, and, and, and more broadly health inequalities. So I suppose like, like volunteering in quite, and some would say quite extreme spaces, right? Um, so maybe we could start with just a general kind of, you know, give us a bit of a grounding. It's just a nice, nice way to get into conversation. Tell us a bit about yourself in terms of, you know, where, you know, where, where you're coming from first, like maybe a bit about your background and your passions, interests, and, and then we can get into your actual PhD. That's all right. Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, when I, I work in uh, public health and I've uh, oh, okay. been in that role for about 15 years or so, 16 years, and um, doing various roles, looking at things like um, alcohol and, you know, lifestyles and so on. Mm. Um, but as a dominant theme in that work has been health inequalities and recognising there's a huge gap, um, especially where I work in Stockport, you know, between you know, how long people live and how long they're in good health for between the, the wealthier and the poorer areas. And uh, there's other aspects to that as well around race mm. and so on. So inequalities has been sort of a big concern and a big challenge for people in public health in that an awful lot of the approaches that were taken in the last uh, decades really have failed to address that um, successfully um, and it's, it's led to some critique really and recognition I suppose which um, has sort of grown as, over time with myself you know that those things which enthusiastically embraced in the early years about behaviour change, grief interventions, is all very very individualistic and misses the whole sort of importance of this of the underlying drivers of, of health inequalities so um i think um when we start to explore what's underlying that you know we start to look at those sort of structural differences and differences in power and, and so on and so I was, I was interested in exploring that and i actually did a master's in health improvement and health promotion up at robert gordon university and that was as part of that that came across this um research and there's a lot of research that says that volunteers tend to be happier and actually to to live longer um which is a fascinating sort of idea to me you know is there something that within human nature perhaps you know that we actually benefit when we help other people which i think is a really nice thing that i'd like to believe anyway. <laughs> yeah yeah it's so, a lovely idea isn't it yeah. yeah yeah so i suppose that's sort of a hook that drew me in and then I did um, a little bit of uh, research, a small project with food bank volunteers. Um, but the, the stories that they told about the role that volunteering had played in their life were so powerful. It was absolutely amazing. Um, and that's what kind of inspired me to want to study this further, really, and to sort of understand, you know, what is it about volunteering that can make a difference? Recognising it doesn't always, you know, it can be stressful, it can be isolating and so on but for a lot of people it can be really really beneficial and so i was interested in exploring you know what is that relationship between volunteering and well-being and a lot of the research around that it comes from a very sort of psychological perspective and um, so it's very much just looking at the individuals whereas if we look at health inequalities as i mentioned we need to look at the, the wider society as well so i'm kind of trying to pull in something from that health inequalities literature um together with that psychological perspective and trying to bring those together and you know think what are the sort of underlying sort of drivers and I was quite inspired by work like Marlon Peacock's work around uh, shaming encounters you know which explored um, the role of, um, of shame something which originally came out of Wilkinson and Pickett's work around health inequalities well wider inequalities and in impact mm. on health um, and so I wanted to build on that really and explore that further, you know, what um, what she called a, a sociological understanding of shame. So not just looking at the individual, but understanding how that is produced in the social situation. And, you know, and can 
held as volunteering because I think one of the powerful things that came out of that earlier research was that sense of what I called identity validation. You know, people were able to claim a very sort of positive identity as somebody who's one of the good guys, someone who's doing good, uh, which kind of counteracts and defends against the kind of stigmatized identities that go with, um, you know, claiming benefits, being poor, being homeless, whatever it may be. Um, there's an awful lot of uh, very negative stereotypes and caricatures of people. Mm-hmm. It's also a damaging to to your to your well-being. You can really see kind of how, how you're sort, you know, how, how you've always been kind of passionate for you know kind of like marginalised groups, you know, in 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 one way or another. There, um, and, and you've obviously been 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 sort of like building on that in terms of mm-hmm. like your understanding as well, in terms of what you could do about it, and the, and the kind of as you say that. No, uh, in that kind of like individual versus structure kind of debate as well. You know, I, I, I mean, we'll 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 get into it as well. But that's a whole whole other uh, debate, isn't it? Which is a fascinating, a fascinating one to explore. Um, yeah, well, I think the underlying sort of interest partly comes from my own sort of family history. I guess that there was inequalities mm-hmm. within my family, and that my two oldest brothers, Barry and Eleven Plus, went to a secondary modern school, which kind of made them working class. Then the rest of my brothers and sisters, the eight of us all together, we we went to grammar schools and had that privileged education. And I always felt that there was a real sort of injustice there because they were just as bright as the rest of us, you know. And for some reason, some random process, they end up being shoved one way and labelled one way, you know. And I, I think that's always been a sort of an underlying sort of sense of. Mm. You know, that kind of disadvantage them in many ways compared to the rest of the family. It's it's quite nice to see how um you know with with most kind of like like PhD researchers, there is that kind of that that that, that real that real personal you know, like commitment and passion to you know to actually you know to, to want to make them make the world better in some way and and to draw on their own on their own their own personal experience. And obviously in your case you can see there how you've obviously ref, re reflected upon the sort of inequalities within your own family and sort of you know started to kind of okay you know almost, almost question the status quo and and the structures that are in place and i think that's like the sign of a good of a good researcher early on so when mm-hmm. you you know unpicking those 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 sorts of strands and asking you know what's what's going on there that doesn't seem right and of course you yeah, you yeah. were right um do you want to do you want to then kind of pivot in, in in terms of um you know i know I, I know it's a horrible thing to ask but if you were to uh encapsulate your 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 phd into a a really robust nutshell <laughs> um you know what yeah how would you summarize it and, and maybe give us the title as well so we get a full picture of um, what what your work entailed yeah yeah so it's about exploring um volunteering relations well-being in the context of health inequalities so mm. really i suppose it comes down to uh in terms of understanding health inequalities recognize that um our psychological state um our, our well-being is very much related to our, to our physical health as well as our mental health and so I wanted to explore <clears throat> well-being is a kind of a, a bit of a way in I'm not saying it's completely uh, unchallengeable but it's certainly if we talk think about some of the negative impacts on health of things like exclusion and um, stress and anxiety and all those things then well-being is almost like the counter to that isn't it it's about feeling it comfortable relaxed feeling mm-hmm. that, you know I've got a functioning life and so on um and so I wanted to explore you know so volunteering is affecting well-being does that have implication for wider uh work around inequalities um so I interviewed uh, a number of uh, 11 people uh who were volunteers plus the managers in the, in the organizations or some of the managers and it's used a, a psychosocial approach. Um, I don't know if I'll explain that. <laughs> um, but basically, that's drawing on so kind of sociological perspectives, but also um, psychoanalytic concepts to some extent and, so, uh, and psychological uh, understandings. Mm-hmm. And kind of bringing that together, recognizing that our internal kind of sense of ourselves is very much shaped by the world in which we live, the social world. So uh, the outer becomes inner and the inner becomes outer in a sense. So how we react to the rest of the world is based by on some of those inner feelings. But those in turn are shaped by the world around us. Um, 
and uh, I spent quite a bit of time uh, actually volunteering myself in those organisations. So, uh, so to get that direct experience and be able to observe those relationships, processes, and practices in the everyday. So, what what I concluded really was that <clears throat> there was a really sort of that identity was a really sort of good way of understanding the benefits of volunteering to people. Um, <clears throat> if we think about identity as something which is kind of multiple, you know, we all have lots of different identities, don't we? Mm -hmm. Kind of different roles, social roles that we play, you know, as a, myself, you know, I'm a father, I'm a, a student, I'm a, <laughs> a, a, a colleague at work, um, you know, in simplistic terms, but there's, we all have lots of different identities and it's always in relation to those around us, isn't it? Really? Different hats. I was thinking it's different hats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, we play certain roles, don't we? You know, and Goffman talked about that kind of performativity of a identity. Um, so so it gives a, a kind of socially approved identity. You know, as I mentioned before, you kind of one of the good people is helping others. You know, it's kind of socially endorsed, approved. You're hardworking. You know, that's a big thing in in our current society. Nobody wants to be seen as lazy, do they? Mm. Um, so it it kind of reinforces that positive individual identity. But there was also a sense um, of collective purpose, collective shared purpose, like identity. And I think that really, really helps in kind of cultivating a sense of belonging. And again, that's so important in terms of our, our well-being, is to feel that you're with people who kind of share some of your values, your beliefs, your passions and so on. It makes a big difference, I think, to um, how we feel about ourselves and our ability to connect with other people. Um, which we know is so important. So the the so there's lots lots of real sort of benefits to to volunteering um, that I could see happening in that process. But there also I also realised by drawing on that sort of wider health inequalities thinking around what's the power relationships going on here. Um, we could recognise that there was. Um, Unwittingly, I think, because the people running these organisations are lovely people, really passionate about making the world a better place. People I relate to very much, and you know, I, I include myself in the critique. Really, is that we tend to look at the individual and we see that individual is struggling. Perhaps they've failed in some way. You know, um, we understand things. A lot of social problems like homelessness and poverty don't mean terms of that individual failure um, and I think the responses that we put in place in those kind of organizations are things like employability giving people the skills to get a job you know um, psychological therapies giving them the skills to cope with the adversity and so on that they're going through um, social skills even uh, in, it's talked about in some of the one of the organizations um, so it's about changing that individual to enable them to fit in society and you know there's certainly benefits to that you know certainly individuals sometimes have gone on and got a job you know and that's made their life better got out of poverty they've got a stable home so yeah there's, there's real benefits to that but on the other hand it's also reinforcing that focus and that idea really that it's a question of individual responsibility so it kind of shifts attention and the focus away from the uh, systematic inequalities um, and the real drivers of um, those sort of issues of poverty and homelessness and so on. So mm. I think um, unwittingly, yeah, we end up actually playing along with that neoliberal narrative, which says that actually it's all about individual responsibility we all need to just pull our socks up you know and get ourselves the skills improve ourselves yeah, and yeah. Mind, you know it's a powerful 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 point that simon it's, it's it, isn't it like, well i mean i i, I love there how you how, how you mentioned that kind of like emphasis on, uh, you know like the emphasis on skills right because it's like mm. it's it's it sounds great but it's actually just like a it's, it's more of a, like a deficit model isn't it it's basically saying what you lack as opposed to uh, yeah. like any anything else so i think, I think that's, that's a really really powerful point to kind of uh, or yeah. criticism of a of our kind of current uh well well welfare state as it stands so yeah. yeah but i mean one of the sort of powerful things that came across 
uh, particularly in the pantry, which is the, the more secular place that I did the research. I should have said, actually, one, one was a faith-based organisation, uh, which is quite yeah. long established and quite relatively big, not national, but, you know, relatively um, big, well-established uh, local charity. And the other was um, this uh, food pantry, which is fairly newly established. Yeah. It was a secular thing, you know, supported by uh, council and housing associations to get cheap food to people in a way that's not as stigmatizing as, as things like food banks. Um, so, you know, it's a great idea. People go in there, they pay about £2.50, they get the food through fair share and things. So it's kind of surplus food from the supermarkets. Um, and you're able to access a lot more food for your money than you would get otherwise, but you've not got the, all the negatives of being in the seat of charity, which um, is a big barrier for a lot of people. Mm. So, um, so yeah, certainly in the pantry, it was really interesting because that was much more sort of, I would say it was very, the people that I spoke to, the, the volunteers were very kind of rooted in the community and had a very strong sense of that local community. And um, some of them were quite critical of the actions of the um, organisations that came in there, they were, that they would, um, that was a bit of an industry in a way. Uh, one of the women I spoke to, uh, Linda, she was called, you know, was really, really insightful and critical. Um, and she's not had any sort of higher education or anything like that, but she knows mm -hmm. she's really bright. And she uh, was able to recognise, um, I suppose, and critique, you know, the, this process whereby there's a group of voluntary organisations who are kind of a network and support each other. They get funding to help this community. But in a way, the primary beneficiaries are those people because they're paying themselves. Um, to to do that work, so uh, and that sounds really harsh, you know. Um, but what she was saying, really, but you know, that a lot of those people are doing it because they care and because they do want to make a difference and so on. And they're not getting paid a fortune, you know. So it's, you know, they're not exactly chief executive British Gas or whatever, are they? But they, but nevertheless, there is some self interest in there. And what she was saying is actually they end up doing things which are quite patronising sometimes um, because um, the communities themselves uh, have got a lot of skills, got a lot of capability, you know, can teach some of those things, you know, if you talk about things like cooking skills and uh, that kind of thing, you know, they could do that <laughs> and say, so why do we need outsiders coming in telling us how to do things? And, and I think uh, there's, we sometimes miss that the, the fact that there is an awful lot of knowledge and expertise and intelligence and potential sort of within that community to actually um to be critical of the existing structures and the inequalities and and so on and maybe we need to work with that and, and to encourage that um that insight um in a non-paternalistic non-patronizing kind of kind of way but um we should be if we're working with communities that are experiencing disadvantages we need to be thinking about how they can come together collectively mm -hmm. they can define what sort of support and help they might want maybe they want to bring in some academic or some hacks expert on something to talk to them or maybe they don't but you know um that that should be their choice but i think if, if we look at some of the sort of movements that have taken place in recent decades i guess Maybe there's something we can learn from those where you've got things like disability rights, obviously LGBTQ plus rights, and you know, the um, anti-racist movement uh, in America and over here. You know, it's been very much about solidarity and taking pride, resisting some of the shameful stereotypes, the denigrating um, constructions that are in the media um, and saying, actually, no, I'm proud to be who I am. And by coming together, we can actually challenge the system and start to maybe, you know, think about changes for the better. Um, uh, I guess that side of kind of community development, as it used to be called, has been somewhat lost, I would say, in the last, uh, last few decades, even though it's talked about a lot in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe the we're kind of missing a trick in a sense, in terms of those of us like myself who want to work with those communities to help make a difference. 
need to be thinking much more about the community, about the solidarity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, these, and they shouldn't be suffering, you know, from, you know, you know people within those org organisations that they, they shouldn't really, really be suffering the same stereotypes. You know, like they obviously should 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 be able to see the individuals more more holistically. But it is easy to fall in that trap sometimes as well. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. our, ourselves included. So, I mean, before we get a bit more into the, um, I suppose the findings and, and the fact that you look at kind of like you know one faith based and not faith, which is really interesting. I want to explore that in a bit. Just in terms of just just to ground it a little bit, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the methods because, um, it, I mean, I, I don't think I've come across that kind of combination before. So, like on the one side, you were, you, know, you were doing, you know, I suppose which is quite interesting. It's sort of like a f, f ethnographic kind of research methods, right? Which you know, for those who don't know, is where you kind of like embed yourself within, um, an organization and try and kind of learn the sort of life world of what's happening there, and so and, and sort of take notes. But then you were combining it, you know, right, with a, a psychosocial kind of kind of model, right, which is more of a therapeutic kind of holistic kind of model, right, where you look at all the social factors and the psychological factors, and you take a take a larger picture. But to me, that 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 seemed like quite a quite a quite a difficult thing to to marry together. There, I don't. Um, it's fascinating, uh, ambitious. So I, I'd love to hear exactly how yeah. how that worked. If you if you could give us a bit of a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's adapted. It's not. It's not uh, completely unique in the sense that uh, a lot of psychosocial um, approaches have used observation in the past. Mm. It's recognizing that um, our feelings, um, our insight into ourselves, and who we are, and our place in the world, and so on, is not something that's fully transparent to ourselves, really. Um, <clears throat> You know, if we think about, you know, for, for a long time, people may be familiar with the, the idea of the Johari window. Uh, it's used in counselling, things like that, quite mm. a lot. And it's the idea that we have that sort of side that we openly talk about with somebody, but then there's also some things which we choose not to talk about with somebody. And then there's some things which maybe that person can see, but you can't see for yourself. And then there's some things which a kind of unknown, you know, some of the underlying motivations uh, <laughs> for our behaviours, you know, are things which we don't even recognise. You know, and if you think about attachment theory, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's very much about the um, the significance of um, our very early life experiences as a baby, basically, and how we were cared for at that age changes how we relate to the world in later life. And we have no conscious awareness of that. We, we can't, we have no words at that time. We can't talk about it. And yet there's something embedded within us, isn't there? That sense of, you know, whether or not we feel secure and loved uh, and so on. Mm. And there's loads of research around that. Um, so, so I suppose what I'm saying is that um, uh, none of us have full insight into our own motivations uh um, ways of making sense of the world um <clears throat> including yeah uh the researchers you know so, so there's, there's a lot of sort of under the surface dynamics and it relates also to pierre bourdieu's work where he talks about habitus uh and the way that the social world around us is kind of internalized and you know we become uh we kind of occupy a sort of position in society which carries with it certain ways of acting, certain ways of dressing, certain ways of talking and being. Mm. <clears throat> and, and again, that's not something we consciously do. We kind of instinctively do it, don't we? You know, and um, <clears throat> so the psychosocial approach is trying to sort of get a little bit beneath the surface, not just looking at what people say um, and, you know, critiquing that and pulling that apart, but also thinking about you know, what, what is not said, um, how can we sort of dig a bit deeper? How can we sort of draw on the, the body language? Um, those are the ways in which we communicate kind of effectively, uh, as well as in words. So we, um, we, we often pick up things within an interview. Um, there's processes like um, projection where, you know, somebody might be projecting their own feelings on somebody else. There's the transference where they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, uh, we all transfer feelings about past relationships to oh, present situations where somebody reminds yeah. us of somebody. Or, so you're like um, psycho sort of yeah. analyzing yeah. the issues as well. That's, that's, that's a whole other 
fascinating level then. Uh, of yeah, analysis. yeah, but I, I'm not a psychoanalyst. You know, mm-hmm. some people that have inspired my work have been, but not all people doing psychosocial studies are psychoanalysts. Mm-hmm. But it's using some of those concepts. And, and one of the powerful ones that came from Holway and Jefferson's work was uh, the defended subject, um, the ways in which we kind of defend ourself, you know, the way that we are seen, the way that we feel about ourselves in our interactions with other people, which means that we'll say perhaps what we think they want, mm. um, uh, they want to hear, or things that are going to be approved and that kind of thing. Uh, and so if we sort of think about those kind of concepts, we can actually explore and interrogate the data in a different way. But a really important part of that is, is that reflexivity and being aware of my own part as a researcher. You know, those interviews that are recorded are very much co-produced, very much affected by me being there. Uh, the questions that I asked, what they think about me, how I feel towards them, what sort of rapport there is, um, all, all, all sorts of personal histories come into that, don't they? Um, but if we, if we understand that and try and sort of act in a way that which is kind of reflexive and you know looks at our own selves critically as well, I think that can actually help us to understand what's going on within the place, what's generating some of those feelings and so on, and how they relate to each other. And the ethnographic part kind of really strengthens that because you're not relying just on an interview, you know, maybe an hour with somebody. You spent that time day in, day out, perhaps working alongside them or at least in the same space. Yeah, you're kind of verifying, you know, what you're finding in the in the interviews. on the sort of the general kind of stories, the narratives of the organisation, mm. you know, how people talk in there about their purpose and what they're doing, but also the, the hierarchies, the power relations, which are often not spoken about, but you see them in the way that people kind of relate to each other, defer to each other, and we all do it. Um, you know, I found myself in some uh, talking to one of the, uh, this accountant who was a volunteer there, quite high status job and uh, lived out in the Cheshire countryside, you know, he's obviously, you know, a, a kind of somebody who really helps the charity in a lot of very good ways. But when I spoke to him, I felt a bit like a child speaking to an adult. I thought, why? I thought about it afterwards, why, why is that, you know? Because, um, you know, I'm a 50-year-old man at the time, <laughs> you know. Um, how do some people make you feel like yeah, that, yeah. You know. I love, I love how how you're kind of like reflecting on 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 your own position there. I, I, yeah. I bet a few 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 sort of researchers do that to really to the extent that they need to, because yeah, as you as you say, like every interaction you have, there's always an additional level of meaning or something going on there. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was interesting because it, it that really resonated. But if you're a podcaster of Darren McGarvey, who was saying, um, when he was interviewing a billionaire, he found himself in that deferential thing in a way it made me feel better it's not just me it's he, he finds that and it's because it's so inbuilt into us that sort of social status i think that we have this or you know it's deep inside us into this idea that that person is kind of above you is better than you because yeah yeah i mean or whatever you know uh, yeah i mean even yeah I, even in the everyday context of of being a researcher I'm, I'm sure it's like i'm sure it's the same for you but if i'm in a room you know and i'm and I'm surrounded by, you know, more senior researchers than me. Um, I immediately feel as if I I should defer to them automatically. When you know, th- th- there's no there's no necessary you know there's not an, a necessary correlation there that you know on a, on a particular question, yeah. the answer I I give might be just as valid as the answer they would give. But as you say, yeah, there is that. Oh, they're 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 higher status, therefore I must take a backstage. And usually it is someone who's higher class as well. So again, there's that that absolutely added juicy layer, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, it's all there inside us, even though we might be kind of critical of it and aware of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of saw that, um, I suppose, in many ways, there was a lot of stories that kind of emerged from your, from, from you know, your sample. Obviously, we, you know, we can't go through all of them. I thought, you know, was there a, a particular kind of um, story that, that that maybe stuck with you from, from, from your sample that you maybe want to give voice to? Yeah, it's hard to say because there's quite a diversity of stories, really. I imagine, yeah. You know, they're all really, really powerful. You know, there's a uh, one woman who 
um, Carol called her. Um, she was had actually uh, come to the UK many years ago um, without permission to remain, and she'd been applying for permission to remain to the Home Office um, since she actually gave birth over here. Um, you know, her child was now in junior school, mm. um, and she was still in this sort of limbo position of. Uh, applying, you know, wanting to stay. She couldn't work. She wasn't allowed to, to work. And when she'd first come over, you know, she'd been terrified of um, speaking to uh, white people in the country because she, she'd been told by those people who got her over here that they, you know, don't speak to them because they'll deport you. Anyway, she, um, she eventually um, came across the... Uh, the centre, which was really, really welcoming and really sort of helped to turn her life around. Mm. Um, but she was still in the midst of this struggle. Quite a few of the, the people were still in quite turbulent waters, in a sense, struggling with different challenges going on. So in her case, obviously, it was this ongoing insecurity and practically nothing to live on, depending on charitable organisation to give her a home and all this kind of thing, you know. Uh, as much as I do about that, I'm sure. Um, but the, the volunteering was sort of so important to her as, as a place where she felt cared about, that she had a role to play, that she could contribute something, you know. And, uh, and sadly, in a way, she seemed to feel a real sort of need to justify her existence as well. And I think that's part of that sense of she's awaiting judgment in a way. And I think judgment is a kind of sort of powerful thing throughout our society, isn't it? We're all constantly judging each other and being judged. And she felt, I suppose, she was in this sort of pending this judgment, you know, it's going to say, yes, you can stay, or no, we're going to deport you. Um, so she felt a really magnified uh, needs to kind of justify herself being here, you know, that I'm a hardworking person, I'm a God-fearing person, I'm a caring person i'm a good mother all these kind of narratives which she drew on um which um were no doubt true but you know in, in a sense there was that that sort of sense that she needed to kind of defend herself and justify herself um i mean it must it must have been quite difficult to hear obviously you know um all these quite traumatic you know um stories i mean yeah was it was it quite difficult in terms of like your own well-being as well? So sort of like operating in this space? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some occasions where I did have to uh, talk to supervisors because mm. I guess um yeah, people sometimes do disclose quite harrowing stories and um yeah. you know there's there's one woman whose story related in some ways to my own. Um history as well and that she'd been bereaved in her 30s uh lost a partner um very suddenly which i'd been through as well and that was and yet our lives were so different and the difference was because i had the advantages of that middle class thing a stable job a stable home and that kind of thing and her life had kind of spiraled since since mm. then um and at the time i spoke to her you know she was looking to move house as an emergency to get away from some people who were harassing her. Um, and it was all in many ways kind of linked to this sort of history that she'd, um, she'd been through, which um, I could certainly relate to on some levels, but I was also very conscious of the huge difference because she was working class, basically, that she didn't have all that security. She didn't have that sort of backup. And, you know, she found herself um, in a very, very difficult position. You know, she'd lost her job because she split up with a, a later partner um, and therefore had no childcare because she was working mm -hmm. shifts. You can't get nurseries, at, you know, on a Saturday evening and overnight. Um, so she lost her job. And then, of course, she was penalised for voluntarily giving up her job. You know, it's just yeah, yeah. I, makes I, you angry actually. You know, some of this stuff doesn't it? Really, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, so. these aren't these aren't just um, participants. You know, when you you know when you you know because I'm in the same position. I, I know we'll get onto it in a bit, but you know when you you know when you volunteer for 
an extended period of time in these really challenging environments, these people become your friends. You know, like you, yeah, you there's yeah. definitely a crossing of, of a of a boundary somewhere that I don't know, maybe it's frowned upon within the research kind of world, but it can't not happen when you when you when you're in such close quarters with people. Um, you know, yeah, day in, yeah. day out. That's right. And I think that this kind of research does sort of recognize, you know, that there is an emotional aspect to that engagement. And obviously we need to be careful that we're not going to sort of um, end up causing harm by building relationships which we then walk away from and that kind of thing. So I was conscious that we need to be um, sensitive to that and not get too close to people um, in the process. But yeah, you can't help but feel for people and you know um, relate to their experiences. So, mm-hmm. um, so you, you've, I mean, you've, you've, you've got, you, you've already kind of touched on it a bit, but I would like to explore it. Um, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind indulging me, what what kind of role then did religion play in the kind of like volunteering space? Because it's quite interesting. Because I think one was kind of more secular right? and one was quite religious, so it's kind of nice, yeah. a nice kind of like comparison. Because like for my for my kind of experience in it, it kind of seems like it does underwrite a lot of their motivations and also the way that they they approach welfare itself. For me, seems a little a little bit different. So um, yeah, I'd like your take on that. Uh, what what was going on there? Yeah, the faith-based organisation was um, uh, was actually a very lovely place to be, even though I'm not a believer myself. Um, it was a very warm, welcoming mm. place. They spoke very powerfully about non-judgmental approaches that, you know, God loves everybody equally and that kind of thing. So the narratives were very, very sort of powerful, um, even though within... The, the organization that clearly was quite a hierarchical structure, you know, from the, the managers through the paid workers to the volunteers, or two tiers of volunteers, the mm. church volunteers, who tended to be better off. And the um uh the kind of former client volunteers. Yeah, yeah, were, yeah. That like invisible um, invisible the distinction, but it's quite clear in other ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um well, yeah, the, the narratives were very powerful, I think, and they did spend time, which I think was really important to motivating people. The the, the leader of that organisation was quite a charismatic woman who's actually set this up in the first place. She told her own story of how she'd lived in that area as a student and be through some quite difficult times. And her faith led her to want to make a difference in that community. And she's done fantastic work there with this organisation. Um, she would do her little talk, and even if she wasn't there on the day, they'd always have a get together at the start and the end of the day where they'd often say prayers. They would, uh, but they'd also talk about any challenges they faced that day. And mm. it was it was a bit of a motivational process, actually, I think, in that they were reminding people of why we're here. And, you know, we talked about things like, um, you know, service and you know we're privileged to be able to serve people is the way they, they put it really which is an interesting uh, way of mm. uh, framing it um so i think that was very powerful and i think that sense of welcome and belonging and so on was really really important to to people's well-being you know and, and there's lots of other research that shows that actually religious faith can actually be positive for your well-being and can add to the experiences of volunteers and so on um why that is we're not quite sure because you know to some extent i think it is about that belonging um and that shared purpose and so clearly in this place it was very much about expressing reiterating reminding people about that shared purpose and you know we're all here together and that was very powerful and inclusive, I think. Mm. Um, but having said that, you know, sometimes it's hard to put those things into practice. And, you know, some, some of the volunteers that I did sometimes struggle um, not to judge people because, you know, our society judges people, doesn't it? And we all kind of, you know, imbibe that, I guess, from the, the world around us, you know. Um, so, there were issues around and also sort of I suppose ideas of what is acceptable behavior um, and that applies in, in all 
voluntary organisations, I guess, doesn't it really? But there was um, obviously a sort of for some of the volunteers, you know, there was a, um, a judgment of people based on their kind of religious perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I could to not judge, you know, I mean, it is entirely aspirational. Whenever you, whenever you meet an individual, you're making a whole series of judgments, right? I mean, to be, to be fair, you couldn't, you couldn't survive otherwise. I mean, that's just no, no. the nature of human interaction. We're always going off limited information, aren't we? Which is the yeah, source of yeah, most, most human conflict, I imagine. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, certainly the, the kind of, the narrative of the place was very, very sort of powerful and, like I say those constant reminders and coming together, you know, as a group and saying, and you know, we're supporting each other, you know, mm. we need to challenge people, we're doing that together, and you know, and hopefully, you know, and the, and the, they were not doing it in a punitive kind of way, they would um, very much try to sort of um, work with people whose behavior is not acceptable. Um, things like nicking stuff from the charity shop, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you can see there's got to be boundaries, haven't there, you know. Um, but, yeah, there was um, a, a very strong sense of, um, let's say, shared purpose that came based on uh, what I would call a kind of social justice interpretation of Christianity. Because obviously Christianity means a lot of different things, doesn't it? In America, it seems to be... Mm. Action be uh, force uh, for a lot of people anyway. Yeah, even general um, kind of thing. Yeah. But this was very much sort of drawing on what Jesus said, and I could relate to this because I was brought up as a uh, a Catholic, you know, and I very much believed in a lot of the, what Jesus taught. What I didn't believe in was the what <laughs> the church practiced. Um, but he talked about non-judgmentalism, didn't he, and equality, and giving mm. up material possessions. You know, it's quite radical, you know, some people would say he's a socialist or an anarchist, even in some of the things that he said. Um, uh, it's a whole different field in it's going to. But, you know, certainly there is a social justice interpretation of Christianity. But interestingly, when I asked about use that term, then they kind of steered away from that. Um, so um, the managers, this is when I spoke to the managers, you know, I, I said that, you know, I felt that it was a, you know, social justice oriented approach, and they kind of, yeah, they didn't quite accept that label. Interesting, interesting. I, I, I suppose that there is a, especially now, quite a, I don't know, a, um, it's quite politically charged, I suppose, um, as a as a as a term. Although I totally agree with it, I, it does kind of invoke certain certain ideas and images. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose I can kind of relate to. So, um, I suppose. One thing I'm curious about, because like, you've spoke about the positive kind of, you know, sort of identity change, right? Uh, you know, and obviously like the sense of purpose and things that they would gain from it. What about, you know, in terms of like the well-being, obviously, is what you're looking at. What was the kind of cost to the volunteers then of of of, of occupying these these spaces? I, I imagine it wasn't all positive, right? I imagine mm-hmm. seeing 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 the things that 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 they did would have had a in some way a negative effect, on, or was it entirely positive? Uh, the vast majority of what I saw was positive, but certainly there were some negative experiences. And and it's interesting because I think in terms of forming a group, a collective, there's always a process of drawing a line around that, isn't there? And a boundary mm-hmm. around that. So um, there was one volunteer who I actually interviewed um, twice because she was very... I'd intended to interview them all twice, but yeah. the pandemic kind of stopped the second interviews. Um, but I did manage to do an online interview with this uh, one of the volunteers. And she'd been volunteering at different places for lots, much of her life, really, and was very passionate about the value of it to herself. Yeah. But she actually felt excluded by um, the pantry where she'd been volunteering. And... It was kind of a very subtle process, I think. Um, but she was critical of some practices there. She was very into recycling and things like that. So she would sort of challenge people if they were not separating the rubbish, little things like that, you know. Um, but it kind of contributed to a general sense that she didn't quite fit in that place and she didn't feel that she shared quite the same values. No. Um, as the people there, um, 
and she ended up um, choosing to stop volunteering there. She continued volunteering in other places, um, but that was, um, I guess, the potential downside of some of that uh, collective identity formation is it expects certain kinds of behaviours, doesn't it? And, um, and similarly, you know, in both settings, you know, to be a volunteer, you've got to meet a kind of certain expected behavioural standards, you know, in terms of... Way so, so, like a, like, a, like a moral CV almost, isn't it? It's a, it's a different yeah, set of expectations, yeah. but... Yeah, That's you right. To... A lot of that is unwritten, you know, although they do actually have, you know, uh, agreements that people sign up to as well, you know, about as a volunteer that are, you know, behave in certain ways. And... And in some places I've seen that you know they have a full job description, don't they? The mm-hmm. But that's that's another issue. But um it wasn't that formal. Um, but there definitely was a sense that some people were and so other people I didn't actually meet, but they spoke about people who'd been basically stopped, booted out of the volunteer role because they'd misbehaved in some ways. You know, one guy took more than his fair share of food on an occasion, for example. And so, you know, there's boundaries and um, people's behaviour, people need to behave within certain boundaries, don't they, mm-hmm. um, to, to be accepted. Um, and I think in, in the faith-based organisation, it was much, um, perhaps more subtle in a way, there's sort of the boundaries there, but it was certainly um, a process where people felt that, that um, certain behaviours that you adopt, certain languages, even ways of talking and things like that, that if you want to fit in, you have to adopt. And there was one volunteer there who struggled with that, you know, and I think um, some of that came from her individual history, I suspect, and we can never say things definitely in this because I haven't done a full life history and analysis Mm -hmm. and all that, which did talk about Quite a difficult childhood, spending periods in care, alternating with looking after her mother who had uh, mental health challenges. Um, and throughout the conversation, you know, there was a sense of not quite fitting in. She didn't have a lot of friends outside the organisation. She felt different. She didn't quite fit in. She had quite a lot of clashes with people within the organisation. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a sense of Unbelonging, which may come partly from um, some of that, you know, personal history, um, and maybe partly from the kind of cultural differences. Because I guess you know she was quite um, quite working class background, quite proud of coming from a working class background, and I guess in some ways the culture of the organisation was perhaps more uh, middle class, really, because it was sort of shaped by those. Or middle class church volunteers. Yeah, yeah, it just shows you how much you bring with you to a you know, volunteer placement. It's not, it's not just a case of a blank slate, is it? You, you bring all sorts of judgments and beliefs and morals and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm aware that. Um, I think you wanted to ask me some questions as well. Yes, yeah, so, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. I know that you've uh, done a lot of volunteering yourself. You know, so I, I think I would have been an ideal participant for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Be really interested to, to know about your life and how did you get into volunteering uh yeah so so for those who don't know i've been volunteering in like the homeless space for probably a year and a half or something like that um as a as a volunteer as part of part of my research although to be honest i, I do far more volunteering than is necessary for my former research which is probably related um yeah so in terms of um why i'm in volunteering uh, uh to be honest, I've I've always worked. I don't I don't know if this aligns with your your participants, but I've I've always worked with uh, marginalized sort of marginalized populations in one form. Um, I worked with kind of I think my the first was like a, you know children who'd suffered different forms of abuse, um, and then I worked with those who had kind of um, you know special sort of uh, edu- educational needs. Um, you know, like I worked a lot with Prus, um, you know, people referral units. Um, and those who were encountering quite strong barriers, I suppose, to life, you know, to life success, things like that. So I've always done that type of work. Um, I'm not sure if it, you know, if, if it was a, a sort of narrative that came up with your your sample, but um, I often I, I often had a bit of a 
a sadness working kind of right, like regular jobs. It, it, it felt um, it had no utility. I, I was just doing a task for the sake of doing a task. Didn't feel like I was gaining anything from that. And I don't just mean in a selfish sense, although maybe that was part of it. I meant in a societal sense, I wasn't really contributing anything. Like it didn't really matter if I did that, did that or not. Whereas if I did something, you know, you know helping a young person overcome some you know physical abuse that they 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 dealt with that for me was like a net benefit and you know, i'm sort of i'm i'm in a small way contributing positively to the world and that you know yeah. Yeah. that 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 matters maybe in a small way but it matters so i've i've always wanted to um do that so when i took took this this phd which was looking into uh, homelessness in different services immediately the volunteering was the first thing i wanted to do because i was like there's only one way i can learn this space and that's that is to put myself in it and as and kind of like what you what you were saying learn the the language and the, and, and the culture and the best way to talk to these people and I, I you know under, understand their experiences and not be your typical researcher who just reads the books but doesn't actually know anything about what's going on in that world mm-hmm. um I, and I, and to be honest from a purely self like selfish point of view i absolutely love it i i, I just really enjoy the, the the type of work it's just it's just very fulfilling and you have great 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 conversations and there's this idea as well that like a homeless kind of like provision is going to be really dreary and depressing and, and it's not to say that there aren't that uh, that isn't present but it's actually quite sociable you know yeah. it's it, 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 it goes against the, the stereotype but it, it's usually mm-hmm. quite uh like a vibrant and you know that you're, you're great conversations fascinating conversations people who have amazing life experiences it's, it's perhaps not what you would expect it to be i think it's part of the the, the issue so i'm not sure if that was in any way useful or, or yeah yeah it's interesting i mean i, I found that i really enjoyed the volunteering as well actually it did a lot for me and like i say is that, that social side to it but also that feeling that actually doing something that's tangible is making a difference not just mm. um i suppose um you know not just reading about it and not just uh you know working on policy and things like that which I often do you know to actually there in the community was really rewarding yeah mm. so do, do you think it sounds like in a way it's affected the way that you feel about yourself would you say it has so it in terms of like it has it changed you know my own self-image sort of thing yeah 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 that is that that is a hard question isn't it um i suppose mm. i i yes in a sense that i like to think of myself as a as a good person that you know that that empathizes and and, and thinks of others regularly mm. and i suppose you know it sounds really bad to say but you know volunteering kind of i suppose proves that doesn't it like on on some level otherwise i'd be mm. I'd, I'd be i feel maybe more of a fraud i guess if i was just you know it's kind of like well you know you 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 say all these nice things but are you actually doing some like are you actually are you actually giving up your you know your your time are, you know you know are you being inconvenienced to do something positive for someone else like mm-hmm. um i think it is it is important to to um do what you preach um as it were so yeah yeah maybe yeah i think i think it probably does um i think i'm probably more patient than perhaps i used to be um i think it's quite easy to make assumptions about an individual and their circumstances i mean even as a researcher to be honest you know like you kind of like learn that there's these typologies and boxes and criteria that you define people by um and i think naturally my brain does does see things that way and then when you actually go into it in real life and obviously immediate complexity and, and nuance um it, it can like it challenges that so i think in terms of my identity it, it made me be more reflective and more patient and actually sit back and give time to actually um form a better judgment about about someone um which is it kind of, which is it which is a thing you learn i think yeah uh, yeah yeah I don't know. is that is, is that something that, that aligned with your sample yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying about that needs for a sense of kind of authenticity isn't it really um I'm just it just made me think really that uh, I guess that is something which in a way relates to that individual responsibility doesn't it and that idea that we must prove ourselves individually that we are worthy people and we're doing good things and, and so on but you know it's not a bad thing you know the, those kind of values I guess are ones which I would certainly align with you know in, in that yes we do want to actually feel that we're 
you're making a difference. And in a way, that's one of the, uh, the positive aspects of um, society, because, you know, our society sort of got a lot of good and bad in it, in a sense, in terms of the stories that are around um, and the values are around it. So really, yeah, quite make, makes me think really, yeah, about that, um, mm. that sense of how, how we are sort of taking on that individual responsibility for making a difference to homelessness. You didn't cause homelessness. <laughs> you know, it's uh, what we're taking, but you're taking on the responsibility for it. And Yeah, that's you know, true. I, I do feel that way. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I think, I think, I originally my desire to help help did come from a place of anger actually because you know mm. you, you you'd walk around the the streets of Manchester and you and you see so many rough sleepers and that and that would make me angry not not mm. for them as in like I was blaming them but you know we can't claim to live to live in a civilized society with a with a apparently robust wealth you know wealth welfare state and and we're we're tolerating that so I I I suppose I did I felt a, a rage there that was like right okay yeah. I'm going to actually do what 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 can I realistically do as one yeah. individual? What yeah. can I do? Because obviously we are we are you, you have to be realistic in terms of what what impact and change you can in you know instill yeah. and create. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's always is that that two way pull which I've I've always felt myself, I guess, between that wanting to directly help people individually and make a difference in their life. And that is really rewarding and really important. You know, it mm. does actually improve people's lives, turns people's lives around sometimes. But at the same time, thinking about, well, you know, we need to change policies and systems and, you know, <laughs> the, the economic drivers and all those kind of things. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So at the same time, and I, I don't think it's um, an either or. I think it's both. We've got to look at both at the same time, haven't we? And, you know, and some... Voluntary organisations do that, you know, they do actually sort of um, both directly help people and campaign for change, don't they? Don't they? You know, we've seen that with a lot of sort of disability rights organisations, for example, you know, really delivering support to people, but they're also mm. sort of campaigning for change. And um, so, so really, I guess my sort of feeling, the conclusion that I came to really was, yeah, it's, it's about sort of, seeing it through seeing it both ways you know a bit like um guest out switched thing where you see two different pictures in one mm. and you can switch between the two but we need to actually bear in mind it's it's both really and that we need to be um we need to respond on both levels really that individual human level which values that individual and can make a difference to them and make a difference to yourself as well you know because there's nothing wrong with looking after your own well-being that's not selfish that's good and that helps us to help others <laughs> well yeah thank, th th thank you for for making my uh ramblings appear uh sensible i appreciate that that was that was a, that was a nice mercy <laughs> mm -hmm. no, yeah. no, it's, it's really interesting thought-provoking just to, yeah to um hear that and, and some of that does resonate with i suppose mm. you know my, my conclusions really about yeah, validating your, yourself as well, isn't it? Really? You know? Well, um, because I'm I'm conscious that we have we have run over. Apologies yeah. for that, but it is it is such an. It, I told you it was a really fascinating area, and I uh, have to have to restrain myself. But um, I suppose for a final question, and what's what's next for you? I suppose like what like how are you how are you going to use all this um, insight? I mean, I know you kind of already work in a related area anyway, right? Um, for the council, but. You know how are you how are you taking this the the knowledge from your PhD and gonna gonna put into practice as it were? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's something which certainly I'm taking back to work. Um, as I work in public health and around mental health and well-being, and particularly on the kind of strategy side of that. So this is helps to, to shape that. But on a wider level, I guess yeah, some very practical things. I've got a couple of conferences coming up in September. Uh, voluntary studies, uh, sector studies network, and the sociological association, medical sociology conference. Brilliant. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, they always are. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, I would love to sort of explore these kind of issues further. Uh, I don't quite know exactly how that's going to go in the future, but um, that's a good, that's a great start. I don't, I don't, I, 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 no one, no one expects you to have all the answers at this point. But it's just, it's just, uh, it's great, it's great that you're there in this space, 
um it's a really it's a really important area to research and um obviously wish you the very best um with you with your all your ongoing work and thank you very much for you know obviously giving up your time today to to tell us about what you're working on it's been a really fantastic conversation yeah thanks very much uh for, for your time as well it's, it's great to have the opportunity to talk about it and, uh, no problem thanks okay. Simon. Listening to the End of the World podcast with Anton Roberts plus guests. If you'd like to leave a message, please do so after the bleep. Like, comment, subscribe, because knowledge is for everyone.